Hi, I'm Malcolm Duncan. Thanks for joining me for the podcast series Risk Takers, The Life God Intends for You, based on a book by the same name that I wrote in 2013. My prayer is that God will use this podcast series to encourage you, to inspire you, to challenge you, to stretch you, but most of all, to lead you into the life that he has for you. For more information on Risk Takers or other resources, please take a look at my website, malcolmduncan.co.uk, or you can contact me via Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter. Welcome to the third episode of the Risk Takers podcast, where I want to explore what it means to risk our reputation. When Paul describes Epaphroditus in Philippians 2 verse 30, he describes him as someone who came close to death for the work of Christ and risked his life to make up for the services that the Philippians couldn't offer. It's a powerful phrase, risked his life. And it's that that is the place I want to start, really. William Shakespeare in Othello in Act 2 has one of his characters saying, Reputation is an idle and most false imposition, oft got without merit and lost without deserving. It's true, isn't it? We often don't think we deserve all the accolades. And then when we are attacked, we think, gosh, where did that come from? The word that Paul uses for risking his life in Philippians 2.30 is borrowed from the world of gambling. And it means to gamble everything or to take a risk or to risk it all on the throw of a dice. And there's evidence to suggest that around the time when he was writing, when somebody was gambling, they would throw their dice and they would shout, Epaphroditus, like a prayer almost. In much the same way as people would now shout or blow on dice before they throw it. And it's only as we read Epaphroditus's character and think about his actions that are described in the letter to the Philippians that we begin to understand why his reputation as a risk taker was so strong. First of all, he was utterly committed to his task and he was willing to give up everything for it. Paul describes Epaphroditus really powerfully when he says, Still, I think it is necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, my brother, my co-worker and my fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need, in Philippians 2.25. Those short statements escalate in strength. My brother, my co-worker, my fellow soldier. We know that Epaphroditus was sent with a monetary gift to Paul. We know that from Philippians 4.18 when Paul was in prison, which he receives with great joy. Epaphroditus is like a member of his own family, according to Paul's own words, like a brother. And it's clear that Paul wants him to be welcomed back with open arms in Philippi. Because when he arrived at Paul, Paul welcomed him and as, a, as, a, as a family member. And Paul makes it clear that it was Epaphroditus' visit itself that brought him comfort and hope, not just the money. There's more to that sacrifice in that visit than you might realise. In coming to see Paul, Epaphroditus becomes part of Paul's ministry and Paul becomes part of Epaphroditus's. Paul describes him as a co-worker, not an underling, but someone who is working alongside him. And he describes him as a fellow soldier. There isn't any doubt that Paul understands ministry as a battleground. And he sees himself as a soldier in the fight and he sees those who stand with him in the same way much as he expresses in 2 Timothy 4, 7. So Epaphroditus is like a brother, a co-worker and a fellow soldier. 
admirable traits, but there's even more to this. Remember, Paul was in house arrest wherever he was being held, whether that was Rome, Ephesus, or Caesarea, when he wrote the letter to the Philippians. The language that Paul uses about Epaphroditus shows that he took time to be with Paul, that he spent considerable time with him. And there's a powerful vein of truth to be mined here. In effect, Epaphroditus was willing to give up his freedom and become associated with a prison inmate because he knew two things. Firstly, that his church family had sent him, and secondly, that Paul needed him. Although we don't have any idea of how Epaphroditus did it, he gave up his freedom in order to give Paul the money that he was carrying on behalf of the church in Philippi. What's clear is that Epaphroditus must have known that he would have to be willing to give up his freedom for Paul. I think that when he went to see Paul and he stayed with him, that's the important thing, he stayed with him. He said, I will become a prisoner too because my brother needs me. The monetary gift pales into insignificance in the light of a man who's willing to sacrifice his own freedom so Paul could be supported and strengthened. It's an, a risk to sacrifice your freedom to support a brother or a sister in Christ. I wonder what the repercussions are of that for us today. I'm an ambassador for the charity Open Doors, which works with the persecuted church around the world. And they have a great strap line on our knees in prayer and on our feet in action. They want to support women and men and boys and girls who love Jesus by highlighting their plight, by standing up for them and by praying for them. And I count it an honour to stand with them in this ministry. Across the world today, there are more Christians persecuted or imprisoned for their faith than at any other time in human history. The 20th century produced more Christian martyrs than all of the other 19 put together. And as I sit in the freedom of the UK recording this podcast, there are cases of imprisonment, oppression and cruelty all around the world. From girls in Pakistan to uh, pastors in Korea to men and women in China. Um, it is challenging to think that they are our sisters and our brothers. And I find myself asking this, am I willing to risk my freedom in order to serve them? Brother Andrew, who founded Open Doors, said there isn't a country where you're you can't get a Bible into it. It's just that I may not be able to promise you that you will be able to get out of it again. Would you and I be willing to give up our freedoms and our rights because our brothers or our sisters needed us? What are we doing to serve and to support those who are suffering for their faith? What can we do? A huge amount. We can write to those in power. We can join, join awareness raising campaigns. We can ask our church to highlight the issues. We can pray about it. We can get involved. Brother Andrew the founder of Open Doors, is well known for his commitment to risking everything in order to getting people Bibles and getting them hope. In a risk-averse culture like the UK or a deeply litigious culture like the United States, it can sometimes become part of our cultural fabric that we only do what is safe. We can fool ourselves into thinking that God would never ask us to risk our freedom for others, that a request like that belongs to another age or another part of the world but the bible doesn't allow us to have that the risks to freedom are much closer home than the other side of the world for most of us there's a risk in our reputation around our popularity epaphroditus must have been willing to be imprisoned but he must also have been willing to be unpopular i don't imagine there would have been a roman fanfare awaiting his arrival at the house where paul was do you something that 
seems to have mattered to him more was that God was pleased with him and he wanted to support his brother. He wasn't bothered about popularity. I wonder how many of us are bothered too much about being popular. How willing are we to put our heads above the parapet to be the objects of scorn, criticism or even attack for the, same, for the sake of Jesus? I wonder, are we willing to face the scorn or the ridicule of our society and stand up for truth around morality, around lifestyle, around choice, around truth? What will we do when the world tells us that we are wrong? Will we give up and say, well, the world must be right? Or will we stand? Will we risk our popularity so that we can be faithful to Jesus? Sometimes doing that will involve a huge amount of risk for our popularity. In 2006 in the United Kingdom, something called the Sexual Orientation Regulations were introduced, which basically gave um, same-sex couples legal protections around pensions and their standing as citizens in the United Kingdom. And I supported them then and I support them now. As a result, many in the conservative end of the church thought that I was saying that I was endorsing or supporting same-sex relationships. Or that I was saying that there was a biblical mandate for same-sex behaviour. I wasn't, I am theologically conservative on issues like that, on most issues. What I was saying was that I believed that it was important that the legal rights of citizens around inheritance and things should be protected. But then in 2013, when the same-sex marriage bill was introduced, my theological position had not changed one bit, which meant that I opposed same-sex marriage and that I couldn't with a clear conscience conduct a wedding between two people of the same sex. The liberal end of the church then decided to criticise me and say that I was far too conservative. My position hadn't changed. My popularity with one group was at risk in 2006 because I wasn't being as harsh as they wanted me to be. And in 2013, it was at risk from another group because they were saying that I wasn't being as compassionate as they wanted me to be. And yet all the way through, what I tried to do was maintain a biblical ethic around sexuality and around human dignity and around giving people respect whilst being clear about what the Bible permits and does not permit within sexual conduct. That's the challenge, I think. If you want to stand for truth, you are going to be criticised. If you want to say something that is difficult for people to hear in our culture, you're going to be misunderstood. Epaphroditus was not concerned with popularity. Or if he was, he wasn't as concerned with it as he was faithfulness to Christ and to Christ's body. You and I must be very careful never to make popularity our cultural idol. It's never our measuring stick. There's a risk involved in standing with the body of Christ. There's a risk involved in living for the kingdom of God to our reputation in the eyes of the world. There's a risk that some might label us as fundamentalists or as extremists or as un unbalanced. But there's an even greater risk if we don't do something. Because in the words of Edmund Burke, evil prospers when good people do nothing. Put bluntly, if you and I aren't willing to risk our reputation for the sake of Christ, then we have placed our reputation above Christ's reputation. I couldn't put it any clearer than that. Let me put it this way, if Jesus has never apologised for us or been embarrassed by us, then why on earth should we ever apologise or be embarrassed about him? You and I may not find ourselves on the same page on the issue of sexual ethics, 
But we must surely stand on the same page on issues of truthfulness, freedom of religion, the importance of honesty, integrity, and many other fundamental principles of gospel living. I know it takes courage to tell the truth at work. I understand that there's a danger in standing up for truth when you believe it and other people don't. But surely the risk of not doing it is greater. If there is ever a time for followers of Christ to stand up and be counted, it has to be now. But Epaphroditus also had a risk, not only to his popularity, but to his health and his well-being. He got sick during his stay with Paul. Philippians 2.27 tells us that. So much so that he almost died. And he was so anxious not to burden his friends and presumably his family in Philippi that he stayed with Paul for an extended period. And Paul then sent him home with a commendation, anxious that Epaphroditus wouldn't be unfairly judged when he got back to Philippi. There's the second risk. He wasn't only willing to risk his freedom and his popularity, he was willing to risk his health and his well-being and his reputation in all of that in order to be faithful and to serve Paul and God's kingdom. His attitude flies in the face of much that we receive as approved wisdom today. Epaphroditus would rather suffer illness and hardship and be effective for Jesus than enjoy well-being and not be effective. His example was brought home to me by two people that I know. One of them is a lady who was a missionary in Africa. She's now in her 80s and she continues with huge passion and energy to be a champion for missionaries around the world. She's determined to help the cause of global mission and she holds it high in her church and in the demands and expectations of others around her. She argues for finance to be invested in it. She refuses to be silenced. She stands up. She speaks up. She shows up. And on three occasions in her life, she had to walk away from absolutely everything to remain faithful to Christ. And on each occasion, she did so without regret. She's amazing. The second lady was a missionary for many years in a country that borders with China. And because of her service to Jesus, she became very ill. But she stayed where she was. She endured the hardship and the ridicule and the marginalisation for Jesus. She gave up the hope of bearing children because of her calling. She sacrificed everything on the altar of God's kingdom. Both of those women went through trials and challenges at a time when email, Twitter, Facebook and other electronic means of communication were nowhere to be seen. At times they endured their suffering in silence rather than overwhelm or trouble their friends back in the United Kingdom. Like Epaphroditus, they were willing to commit their way to God and God alone in order to protect themselves and those that they loved at home. How many missionaries listening to this podcast know the pain and the sacrifice of silent and unseen struggle? How many women and men listening to my words know deep, deep, deep in their heart that they had to lay down careers, that they gave up close proximity to family, that they walked away from relationships, that they gave up the possibility of marriage, that they gave up the possibility of being parents in order to serve Jesus? Epaphroditus risked everything and his reputation was of little consequence to him so long as his reputation in God's eyes was held high. And thirdly, he was completely selfless. He risked his health, he risked his reputation, he risked his popularity. But he went further. He went where the church needed him to go. 
He didn't go where he wanted. He went where God wanted. He was a servant. My prayer is that God would raise up a generation of people like him. I have a friend who's a Catholic priest and he recently moved to another parish so that he could be part of what that God wanted him to do there. He'd only been where he was five months. Everybody shook their heads and scratched their heads and tried to work out what it was that could cause him to be five months somewhere and then move on. I said to him myself, I was a little confused by his choices. Having just moved to where he was, how could he be moving again? And his response, I'll never forget it. He said, Malcolm, I will move if those in authority over me ask me to, because I made a commitment to serve God by becoming a servant. Not only that, he said, but you should know that it isn't hard to move when the only thing you own is a suit, a pair of shoes and a Bible. That's why I took a vow of poverty. I was speechless and profoundly impacted. That man understood much more than I did at the time what it meant to risk everything for what it meant to risk everything for Jesus. He gave up wealth, possession, status, and even the rights of his own life for the sake of the gospel. His life is completely orientated around serving God's purposes, and completely not orientated around serving his own agenda and his purposes. He's a modern-day Epaphroditus, a risk-taker. Many of our churches, many of us as leaders, could do well to remember that God can tell us to go somewhere and then apparently call us somewhere else very quickly. And it's our job to follow him. And sometimes it doesn't make sense. I don't think it made sense for Mary when she was told she was going to bear a child. I don't think it made sense when David, as a young man, was made king. I don't think it made sense when Paul was told repeatedly by God he wasn't to go to Spain, he was go to Macedonia instead. God has the right to send me back to Northern Ireland and then in a whim, in a moment, send me on. What might feel like nonsense to others, what my church might not be able to understand, what the world might scratch their head at. God's wind can blow in one direction if it wants and another the following day. That's up to God. And when I became a pastor, I made a promise I would serve God in his church wherever he wanted me. And I still believe that. To be willing to make that move, to be willing to take that step, to be willing to lay everything down, even when it doesn't make sense and the timing seems off to everybody else, but you know God has asked you to do it. That's tough. But it's also important. So how do you and I respond to Epaphroditus's example? Compare Epaphroditus to the story of the rich young ruler in Mark 10 and you end up with some startling differences. One was willing to risk everything, the other wasn't willing to risk anything. One chose a path to sacrifice, the other chose the path to self. One said yes, the other said no. And in the end it comes down to a simple choice. Can, discipleship can be summed up in just nine simple words. When Jesus asks you to do something, say yes. Saying yes to Jesus, which I will explore later in our podcast series, has a flip side. It means saying no to anything or anyone else that demands the place, the allegiance or the affection that only he can have. Epaphroditus teaches us a simple lesson, <laughs> simple to say, not easy to learn. Anything that holds our affections more than God's will and God's purpose for our lives has become an idol. Let me finish this podcast episode with a story from two of Jesus' relatives. If Abram and Sarah teach us 
anything about our names being closely tied to Jesus, then two of Jesus' relatives teach us something profoundly about reputation. John the Baptist teaches us about risking our reputation for Christ. He says, I must decrease and he must increase. I am not even worthy to tie his shoes. John knows that his light is nothing but a pale reflection of Jesus's and therefore he is happy only to be a reflector. He wants to stand in the shadow of Jesus because to stand in the shadow of Jesus is to stand in the light of hope. The other family member is Jude, the writer of the short epistle at the end of the New Testament. He is Jesus's half-brother but listen to how he describes himself. In verse 1 of his epistle, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. <laughs> no play on his family prestige, no play on his intimacy, no positioning, no power grabbing, no demands, no haughty-totty superiority. Nothing matters more to Jude than Jesus. Jim Elliot was killed on the 6th of January 1956 when he was trying to share Christ with the Wayadini people of Ecuador. He and four of his colleagues were murdered and his story became the seedbed of thousands of others who have given their lives to the purposes of Christ and sharing the good news of Jesus. In his journal on the 28th of October 1949, written just six years before he died, Jim Elliot wrote this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain which, that which he cannot lose. Reputation is an important issue. I know it is. I lead a church. I engage in national and international theology and discussions and stand in the public square. The church that I'm part of has a rich and a beautiful reputation. The denomination I'm part of does too. The Church of Jesus Christ has, and I don't want to do anything that will endanger any of those things unnecessarily. When I talk about risking my reputation, I'm not talking about being scurrilous or dishonest or trying to cut corners. We must guard and honour the trust that has been placed in us by our churches, by our denominations, by Christ at all times. When somebody asks me to lead, I must lead with integrity. But the thing is, the reputation of the church, the reputation of the denomination is not as important as the reputation of the purposes of Christ. It never can be. It never should be. Because in the world of reputations, it boils down to a core question. Whose reputation is most important? Is it mine? Is it the churches that I lead? Is it the denomination that I'm part of? Or is the only reputation that must be first, that must sit above everybody else's, the reputation of Jesus Christ? I think we know the answer. But whether we take the implications or seriously or not, can be seen in how we handle the third area of um, being a risk taker and our character that I want to look at. And that's the question of legacy. And we'll come to that in our next podcast. <laughs>